Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Grace Church of Ocala Sermon Podcast. We are equipping disciples who make disciples in Ocala, Florida. What follows is an audio recording from our Sunday morning worship gathering, and we hope that you will find it encouraging, challenging, and helpful. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org. Well, good morning, church. We're in John chapter 2 this morning. Now, how many of you have been to a wedding? Because I think, yeah, well, just about everybody. Either you Have you participated one that was almost like, man, it, you saw like an impending crash coming? Like, yeah, <clears throat> me too. Like, the, 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 you know, the, what do they call the carnation? Oh, the beautiful flower stuff that you don't know how to put on because you're male. And some other lady puts a big pen in you. The, all the corsages and everything. Boutonnieres, that's it, the boutonnieres. I was at a wedding once where they lost the boutonnieres. And so weddings are like, it, it's like herding cats, but it's fun, and we're, we're supposed to like them. And there's all kinds of cool stuff that happens at weddings, but there's like a ton of things that could go wrong. Like I know of one wedding where they forgot the paperwork to sign. The license, Yes. <laughs> and just when I heard that story, when I did my last wedding, I made sure that puppy was like in Deb's care the whole time in a sealed box. It was like the codes for nuclear war <clears throat> or like the wedding cake gets dropped or is not there or isn't right or still frozen. Or the wrong one. Okay, so we've been to these things. It's like weddings are awesome in that they prove character. If you are around weddings and you do weddings, like the world's coolest job is wedding coordinator people because those people are amazing at what they can do because they choose to do that line of work. Now, Jesus reveals himself to a few people, but what the perfect spot but to say, hey guys, follow me and let's go to a wedding. And we're going to find out this morning that we got to believe in this Jesus as he reveals himself. Not necessarily the Jesus we project to and say, yeah, I'd like to have some of that. But Jesus is going to gather his, he's got his first little group of disciples. And he says, hey guys, let's go do life together. And the first thing they do is go to a wedding. So pick up with me in chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. We'll stop there. So we're at a wedding. This is not a Western wedding. So I have to back up and give you the setting for what is going on. The wedding in Jewish times at this particular time was a three-part, crazy, long, intricate affair. The first part of the wedding is the wedding contract. And often these are prearranged. 
The time between the contract being saying, hey, the father of the bride says, yeah, you can marry my daughter until the time of the consummation is to come up with the money for the bride price. So you get engaged. Now, in Jewish thought, they are married. She is betrothed to him. But if the father of the bride says, hey, it's going to take seven years of labor before you can consummate the marriage, sleep with her, then that's what you're going to pay. So therefore, that's how we have the story of the seven years for Rachel and Leah. So here you have the contract. Okay, now you're going to agree to how much it's going to be for the bride price, and that means, hey, it means if Bernie wanted you to marry her, he said, you need 10 grand to marry my daughter. You're like, that'll be 12 years. Okay, so at the 12th year, then you get to consummate the wedding. This is awkward for us as Westerners. But I got to tell you, it's not our idea, but this is what happened. So there, the reason why we have bridesmaids and bridegrooms comes somewhat from this. This is when the groom gets to say, hey, father, bride, here's your 10 G's or seven years of labor. Can I go and consummate the wedding, consummate the marriage? So the father agrees, hey, it's been paid up in full. So the groom then shows up at the bride's house. They consummate the wedding. The marriage. Now, when after this is done, is the groomsmen and the bridesmaids are sitting outside the door. Awkward. Yeah, you got the Holiday Inn suite for fifty million a night, and you got twelve people sitting outside. You done yet? Because <laughs> we got a seven-day party to go to. So contract consummation. Once it's done, then the groom says. Let's go party. And it's seven days long. So the bride and the groom walk outside of their wedding night room. And then the groomsmen and the bridesmaids say, Whoo, let's go party. So now they go clear through town. Back to the groom's house. Then where the party starts for seven days. Now, when a Jew thinks wedding, it's a great big deal. We got that across? So Jesus has been invited to this wedding. And it's a celebration. Now, for a Jew, the idea of celebration always connects with wine. That's, that they're not worried about whether or not you're going to drink or not. This is going to be a big thing, and there's going to be wine there. So the, imagine, guys, if you planned a wedding, at least we only do one day of this stuff, right? And that's hard enough. So now you're in stage three, the celebration, and it's seven days long. Seven days. By the way, make a mental note in Matthew 25, starting in verse 1, where Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins waiting on the groom that's at the consummation night. So he's the groom showing up, and so it gives you a whole other idea of what's going on when Jesus gives that parable. So the wedding celebration lasted seven days, and hosts were invited as many people as possible, and many distinguished guests and prominent teachers were also invited. So that's the setting for what's going on here. Now the context, instead of planning everything for just one day, the Jewish is a very long process. There were years involved with this. The Jewish idea of a wedding is this huge, joyous occasions. Even their greeting card, you know, like, hey, we're greeted, you know, you need to come up and show at the house, save the date, what we do in America. Now, this is like bringing the wine. Bring your dancing shoes. We're going to party. 
And so that's the idea of what's happening here. Now there's the characters. At this time, there's a huge crowd there. The mother of Jesus is there, which we know is Mary. But John chooses to call her this. Jesus is there and his disciples. From chapter 1, we know this is Philip, Nathaniel, Andrew, Peter, and one unnamed one. So he brings Jesus and his five guys with him. Now what's the problem? Mary turns around and says, they've run out of wine. Now, Mary, where the women sat at the wedding, where they gathered at the wedding, imagine this, was near the wine. <laughs> so there's some thought that Mary may have been privy to the info, like, ooh, there's a bunch of people out there, and the, we're getting low. Somebody better run to ABC. Or she has been, the way John puts her in there is that she may have been invited to the wedding as part of the wedding. So she's part of the logistics of the wedding. But we don't know for sure. We just know for sure she says, they have run out of wine. Which would be like at your birthday cake, who forgot the cake? You got four pieces for 40 kids. Some of the kids are not going to be happy. So the one of the other ideas that I want to entertain this morning, but it's not necessarily in your Bible, but this is, you got to think of the context. Mary, what was her part of the three-part wedding like? It was a lot different. If there's one thing about ladies at weddings, what makes weddings sometimes difficult is, wow, mine didn't go off real well. Honey, yours should, and I want to help yours go off really good. When you're planning a wedding and you got that lady involved, it's sometimes complicated, just to put it out there briefly. But Mary comes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. Maybe in the context, theirs is this woman's heart that 30 years ago, hers didn't go right. She had Jesus during the first part of this. She was betrothed to Joseph. She has a kid before the consummation night. Everything is out the window in the Jewish context. You have not done this right. God, your timing was awful. So when she says, she may have been saying, hey, Jesus, 30 years ago, mine didn't know so well. You're the reason for that. They run out of wine. So what's Jesus' response? Woman, what does that have to do with me? Now the woman, this isn't entirely disrespectful, but it isn't necessarily a term Jesus would have used for his own mother. You could say Jesus put a polite distance between himself with his mother. And the what does this have to do with me is the crux of what Jesus is saying here. The request of the world that's around him doesn't supersede his kingdom work. I know y'all got a problem, but the problem I'm dealing with here, this isn't my time to make it. Big deal. I am going to deal with a bigger problem than what you all have any idea with, and you don't get to boss me of when to take care of your problems on your time schedule. My hour has not yet come. So he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And the obvious answer is nothing. 
Because even if she knew that, you know, hey, maybe this is Jesus, God thing, you need to show up and make yourself loud and proud here. Hey, whoa, you're out of line. Or, hey, you're a guy that's just coming into his ministry, nobody knows you. And you're like, maybe it was, he said, this doesn't have anything to do with me. It'd be just as like you show up at a birthday party. You're the third uncle, aunt removed, and you just show up because you're, you're kind of supposed to be there. And they're like, hey, you should deal with someone. What the, I didn't put this thing on. So the obvious answer to what does this have to do with me is nothing. It doesn't have anything to do with him. But when he says, my hour has not yet come, this is a huge transition in thought already in John. Jesus, the guest, has nothing to do with the fixing the wedding party catastrophe. But more importantly, Jesus' deity as the God-man has yet to be unveiled. The apex of that unveiling is going to be the crucifixion and resurrection. So Jesus' response, hey, what does this have to do with me? You got the problem, we've run out of wine, it's a big catastrophe, it's a big social faux pas. Mary says, hey, they've run out of wine, hey, what does this have to do with me? Obviously nothing. But then let's pick up in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now became wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants had, who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So the six jars of water. You may think when you read that, why in the world would be six jars of water sitting there at a wedding party? So you've got six stone jars sitting there. Well, the rites of purification. There is a couple ideas, like when we have, like back here, have you guys seen the baptismal, been in a church where they have baptismals, and you go in, and it's right there built all in? That comes from the idea, we borrowed that and used with that, with, called mikvahs. The Jews would do rites of, of purification by going down into what we would call baptismal. And by the way, guess how many gallons of water they required to be in those? About 150 gallons. So the bride would do rites of purification through what was Jewish law required, and the groom would also do those. The other idea is that these stone jars were there to clean the utensils. So there is reasonableness for why there were stone jars at a wedding reception. We haven't been to any of those. I'm just trying to fill you in why the context is completely different. If you show up to a wedding and there's six big stone jars holding 150 gallons, you might go, what's that for? Well, that's what I was trying to answer. So Jesus says, hey, look, there's six stone jars there. Go fill those to the brim. Go fill those all the way up. And he tells the servants, go fill them with water, about 150 gallons. Now, here's the crazy part. He says, draw some out and take it. The water to wine is the miracle, right? But to me, it's also a miracle. Bob, if I said, hey, Bob, go get five five-gallon jugs, fill them with water. They need more scotch. You're like, first off, that's a lot of scotch. Second of all, you're like, I know there's water in there. 
Third off, you want me to take that to them and pretend it's scotch? I'm going to get killed. What do these cats do? Okay. To me, this is the greatest miracle part of this miracle. Because I would have been the guy that would have been like, for real? Uh uh-uh. uh, Robbie, you go take that in there. I know. I got more seniority. You're low on the totem pole. You take that in there. So Jesus said, draw some out. And they do. So somewhere in that process, they take it to the guy that's in charge. By the way, this guy should have been in charge of the wine, the quantity of wine. He kind of should have known this. A little insight there, too, the, you know, the master of the feast. So takes it to him, and it's like, this is the good stuff. It is amazing to me that... One, Jesus turns the water to wine. Then two, the servants actually do it. There's faith in action. But also, do you remember from last week what Jesus said to Nate? Jesus says to Nate, hey, before you you came here, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And he's like, whoa, you knew that about me? And Jesus' response, you ain't seen nothing yet. So it's three days later. Nate is there with them. He sees... 150 gallons of water get turned into some kind of chaperon from Napa Valley of the year 19-whatever. It's the best wine ever. Ain't ain't seen nothing yet. Can you imagine on your third day of following Jesus, you see this? It had to blow his mind. And get this also. Jesus sees a need and meets a need without expecting anything in return. It's how we've designed love. How we have defined love. This is also the heart of Jesus, who's revealing himself to the disciples. Whose day is it? If you've ever done anything with weddings, whose day is it? Huh? It's the bride's day. Jesus does his miracle in such a way that she has no clue. All of a sudden, she thinks that somebody went to ABC in the back vault and got the best stuff and got a bunch of it. The groom is like, wow, he didn't even know that there was a catastrophe brewing. Jesus sees a need, meets that need, and does it in such a way that there's only a very few people even know about it. Jesus uses this everyday hard situation. Weddings tend to go wrong. There's never been a perfect wedding unless it's been filmed and put on TV. And he says, guys, let's do life together. Let's go to a wedding. And they get to see, whoa, this is going to go bad. This is a train wreck happening in slow motion. We better leave now. And Jesus says, hold on, watch this, fellas. You ain't seen nothing yet. And he meets that need in such a way that it's just awesome. But nobody comes back and says, where'd you get it? And there's nothing in the, in the scripture that says Jesus got any credit for doing this. But it was part of his way of revealing himself to these people about his character. I will take care of that bride and groom and the entire wedding party in such a way that's outstanding, but I won't get any of the credit for it. How much of what we do do we want to get at least some of the credit if you'd gone to a wedding party and you'd stopped at ABC on the way and bought the best wine you could find and you bought 150 gallons of it, you'd be asking for a receipt. You'd, have bounced the, you'd max out the credit card 
And then probably somebody had seen you show up with a minivan just chock full of wine and been like, who's that? We don't roll like this. So Jesus, with these new disciples, says, watch me in action. Watch how I reveal myself to you in this behind-the-scenes manner. And the disciples believed in him. Look at verse 11. What are they believing in? Wow. Just a few days ago, that guy said, follow me. You ain't seen nothing yet, and I just saw something crazy. Okay. I'm believing more. I'm believing more. I've had some experience with Jesus, and I'm accepting more and more of what that is. The disciples are going to take a while to get it all right. Do they ever really get it right until when, even when Jesus returns from the grave? Uh, no. They're kind of like you and I, right? They really don't have their act together even at the end of the story. So how in the world are they going to believe in him now? What are they doing? They're in the process of learning of their faith. They're in the process of trusting Jesus as he's revealing himself to them. Where are we in that stage this morning? What do you know about Jesus? Do you believe that? As he's revealed himself to you, is it enough to say, well, I'm going to start believing in this? Is there a point in your life where you said, well, okay, I'm going to take this pretty seriously? We're on those journeys of our faith, and there comes a point in which we're going to accept Jesus as he's revealed to us, not the one we make up. I like the fact that Jesus begins his public ministry with what? A little bit of people. <clears throat> John chapter 2 is the transition to quote-unquote Jesus' public ministry, but he does it in public discreetly. Jesus sometimes works in our way, lives that way too, doesn't he? There is something big and monstrous coming on in our world, and Jesus uses people behind the scenes in ways as his hands and feet to deal with our situation behind the scenes. If the world knew everything that was going on, in fact, they probably really wouldn't care that much, but Jesus works with a small group of people in your life behind the scenes in such a way, do you believe me? Part two. We've transitioned now from the behind-the-scenes Jesus that we like that supplies us with the best wine that's ever been made, 150 gallons worth. And we transition now to the in-your-face fired-up Jesus. We like the first one. That's nice. He saved the wedding. But do we accept the second story we're going to read here this morning is valid as he reveals himself to his disciples even more? Pick up with me in, in verse 13. <clears throat> The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Again, we've got to set the setting. It's a national holiday. Everybody comes to Jerusalem for Passover. This week we read in Deuteronomy why that is such a huge big deal. But suffice it to say, in the life and the cycle of the national holidays for a Jew, this is big. This is big. Everybody's coming to town. Everybody's flocking in. The context. 
You got people selling pigeons, oxen, sheep for the use of the sacrificial system that was going on at the time in the temple. And you got money changers. Why do you have money changers? Last week, I went into uh, Wells Fargo, and they had to sign up. If you want to change pounds to, to dollars, this is the exchange rate. If you want to do rubles to whatever. And I was, like, studying this thing. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. And I'm, like, standing in line while everybody else is waiting. I'm just looking at this exchange rate. If you have people coming in from all over the country, you will have money changers there to say, hey, we're selling this in shekels. We're going to convert this over. Now, think about this for a second. Stop here in the story. Is there anything wrong with the money changers being at the temple? No. Is there anything wrong about somebody saying, hey, you traveled 100 miles by foot to get here. You didn't carry your own sheep for the sacrifice. We have some. You would call that convenient. You probably save on airfare, baggage claim, and all that. Well, I just buy sheep when we get there, right? There is nothing at this point that's inherently wrong. But there's a problem. Jesus gets really fired up with the problem. And the challenge of this text is what was the problem? The problem is all centered around worship. When you take that which was meant to be holy and do it with something else, God calls that really, really, really bad. All through the Levitical Code, all through the um, sacrificial system, you were paying big prices if you took that which God called holy and didn't use it for an unholy means. Here is the temple. Why is everybody coming in from all over the place? Because you got to go there. God said, this is the one spot where you're going to hang out for Passover. You're going to come into town, right? You're all coming here. You all need to come in from way out and in, and you're going to buy this stuff, and you're going to do the sacrificial system. That needed to happen. But when we supersede what God meant for something to be for our consumer, whoa, imagine if you got a guy doing an exchange rate a little bit off. Or, yeah, I know you're going to need to buy some sheep, and I'm going to jack the price up a little bit. Or even worse than that, it's no longer about Passover. It's about making money on sheep. Your heart as your son, sheep is not on Passover whatsoever. I got 10 sheep. Kids, raise the sheep. We're going to sell them. We're going to make good money this year. But Jesus said, this temple was created for worship. This is the big deal. When we walk in here this morning, it's all cool to have coffee. It's all good to talk and be nice to each other. But what happens in here is about worship. If it gets off of that, we're out of line. We could be here for the right reasons. Do we need to sing? Well, kind of, yeah, I can't, but Michael can't. So we do that. But if we lose track of why we're here, for what purpose, will we be drawn? Jesus chases out of here with a whip. The message is of judgment. Jesus' fury is unleashed on those who defile the pure worship of God. Now, Jesus' response is pretty tough. Turn over the... I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, we, we need to have a committee meeting because I think you guys are off track. Uh, you sing way too many songs. Or... You know, you're all about this, you're all about that. Jesus says, no, I'm turning this place upside down. Literally, overturns the money changers, drives out everybody. 
And look, the disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69, verse 9. Okay, Jesus is revealing himself to these guys. They have studied the Psalms. They know the Psalms. And then during, during this time, they go from, hey, settling the problem at the wedding to, hey, he's throwing everybody out and this dude's on fire. Oh, that's right. Psalm 69 said, zeal for his house will consume him. So he's revealing himself more and more to this little group. And the disciples remember this. <clears throat> more of Jesus' character is revealed. When he told Nate, you ain't seen nothing yet, he sees the wine and then he sees a temple cleaned out. Jesus cleans house. He had, Nathan could have no idea what Jesus meant, you ain't seen nothing yet. Just blank. Whoa, water to wine. Whoa, you just cleared the temple on Passover. That's crazy stuff. Because of zeal for worship in the house of God. Now pick up in verse 18 because chapter 2, the Jews are going to come and ask Jesus. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. So the, the leaders come in and say, basically, like, who do you think you are? What authority? What badge are you carrying? to be able to walk in the temple and pull this shenanigans off. We want some evidence here. Show me your cred. You would have done the same thing. Jesus says, hey, I'll destroy this temple. I can go into a long story about how long Herod had built this thing. It was a pretty big deal for the Jews and it, until the destruction in AD 70. But they, when Jesus makes his statement, destroy this temple and in three days I was raising up, is crazy. But remember, his disciples heard this same thing. You got to think that they were thinking the same thing. But they ask you why you did it. Who, what, what authority do you have? And he says, destroy this and I'll raise it in three days. You know the disciples had to be sitting there going, I can't build that. What's he got? Maybe turn water to wine. Maybe he can build real quick. Maybe he talks and like bricks over. They're like, man, when do they get it? When do they remember this? Because Jesus is revealing his character to them, not to after he's resurrected from the dead. Then they go back to, oh, dude, you remember that temple cleansing day Jesus went straight up off the hook? Yeah, yeah, he whipped that one dude so hard. He threw those coins clear across the face. That, yeah, that's what he's talking about. Yeah, remember when he said he was going to rebuild this thing in three days? Yeah, I remember that. That was goofy. That temple's still standing. No, he's alive. He was talking about him. So John is giving us clues about Jesus revealing it himself, and these guys are picking it up over a distant time. It's going to be sometimes later before they think back on this. And what do they ascribe to Jesus' words? What do they call it? What does John ascribe to it? Scripture itself. 
John 1 begins, Jesus is the word, God revealing himself to us. God revealing himself to us is his word too today. You have the confidence of holding what's in your hand today and saying, hey, I want to know something about Jesus. I believe if I could have tracked alone and did the uh, water to wine thing. No, when the disciples remember what Jesus said about raising the temple, they ascribed to Jesus' words the authority and they called it Scripture. God speaking to us. You can see Jesus was passionate. He's caring, saw a need, met a need at a wedding. He's passionate about worship and he's passionate about revealing himself to his disciples. But before we move on from this, are we really that far removed from what Jesus is dealing with right here in the temple? Oh, yeah, because are you asking me to go to work this week and say, hey, did you worship last Sunday? No, then smack him with a whip? Not at all. But can you think of anything that we have that where we're supposed to come together to celebrate something about Jesus that we've turned into a consumer item about making money? It's very little about Jesus, or if anything, or even if you're allowed to say it at Walmart. And we've hmm, switched it from worshiping God to now we can make some cabbage. Christmas and Easter. So as we go as fellow believers and fellow followers of Jesus Christ, when it comes time even for Easter and Christmas, we're going to make that about Jesus. We're going to make it about the carols, about the cookies, about blah, blah, blah. Do we have candles for a candlelit service or not? Today. Is today about worshiping God, or is it on my terms that I can get something out of it, and it's not really about me interacting with the God of the universe to worship him? How would Jesus respond to us? And as he reveals himself to these disciples, imagine what they think about the, how serious he takes our worship. Big time. So we've seen Jesus take care of a problem at a wedding, reveal himself to his guys there. He reveals himself to his guys at the temple. Now move to verse 23, John chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, about man. For he himself knows what is in man. Obviously the water to wine and the house cleaning, Jesus performed other miracles. And there's people getting in line to have, quote, faith. Jesus is starting to pour 30 years of life into three years of public ministry. And the result, many people believed. This, at this point, looks like the upswell at the end of a revival, at the end of a youth retreat, the end when everybody, the music is just right, you're at the campfire and they're starting to put logs on the fire. Ooh, wow, yeah, we had many decisions to follow Jesus. John is going to reveal Jesus to us and reveal people's faith in him and what they wanted to follow. And it will climax, and Jesus said, hey, this then, if you want to believe in me, what it means to follow. And when he gets more, that gets more and more fleshed out, more and more people drop away. At this point, John has given us a little clue that many people believed 
But move your finger to verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. See that? The word entrust? It's the same exact word for believe. Many people believed in Jesus. Jesus didn't believe in them. Is a literal translation. What? I gotta say, doing this sermon prep for this sermon was so much fun. You know, figuring out the Jewish culture and the temple. This one was like, oh, in the original, those are the same words. Many people believed in Jesus, he didn't believe in them. John, what are you trying to communicate? God, what are you communicating? Well, first of all, Jesus isn't God and you're not. You believe in him. He is God. Remember with Mary, hey, my time has not yet come. Jesus is starting to say, I am God. In verse 23, John is revealing to us more about Jesus. Not only can he turn water to wine, not only clear into the temple, not only is he serious about the worship, but he's all-knowing. He knows. We can have faith in him because of who he is. Believe it or not, you're not God. He doesn't believe you like you do for him. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not a quid pro quo. You don't get to worship a God that you make like yourself, so therefore you can like him if he likes you back. The crazy thing about this verse, how much did Jesus care about you even when he didn't quote, entrust himself to you or to believe in you? By the way, it would be kind of horrific if God took after my qualities. Impatient. No, nobody would want that. But we got a God that says, hey, Believe in me, even though I know you. The grace of God is so amazing. God took on flesh. God works behind the scene to facilitate a great wedding. God takes on flesh and zealously clears the temple, all the while knowing without a shadow of doubt what's in the hearts of the wedding guests. How could he get so upset at the money changers when they should kind of already be there? How could he get upset about those showing sheep? What gave him the right? Verse 23, he knows. Now, when I meet Bob, I don't know your heart. Frank, I can see you on the trail. How are you doing today? You'd be like, no, I'm great. No, you're not. You're lying. We're good at that stuff. We can put a facade on and say, yeah, I'm doing great. Not so much. Jesus like, I am furious about what was going on in the temple because I know your heart. And I want this to land at home because when we read this morning in Jeremiah, Insert Jesus. Jesus searches the heart and tests the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You're like, oh, that's Jeremiah, and I don't believe in the Old Testament. Okay, let's move to 1 Corinthians. When Jesus returns in 1 Corinthians 4, he will bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness and will disclose the what? Purposes of the heart. The cool thing about following Jesus is I can believe in him, trust in him, and trust my entire life because he knows all about me. And at the end, it'll be fair. It'll be just. Because how many of us have done behind-the-scenes stuff and not getting any credit? Or how many of us has really been total jack wagons and got too much credit? If you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And Jesus knows. So at the same time, he's revealing to himself about it to these guys. 
in his wedding at a temple, and boom, John steps back and writes down 23 through 25, Jesus knows. Wow, he's God. Our song in the night knows. Whatever your night looks like, he knows how to meet your need where you are. He also knows truth, and he also knows zeal. He also wants to fight for the worship of God himself. Our song in the night knows. He knows every motive. He knows every detail, and he knows every scar and still loves. He loves us. He cares for us. He died and rose again, and guess what? He's promised to return again to make all things new. I love that about him. These, any of these verses is so exciting. Jesus knows. God knows and still loves. Look, at a wedding, he discreetly rescued behind the scenes. At the temple, in your face, zealous about worship. He knows. They believe that Jesus knows their hearts. He knows what kind of belief they're making up, what they're going to do. We have to have faith in what Jesus has revealed to us. You understand where I'm going, where I'm building up with this? He has revealed himself behind the scenes to take care of a wedding. He loves you, wants to take care of you. He's also the same Jesus that's loud and proud with a bull whip at the middle of a national ceremony. And then he knows we're in the second chapter of John, and we're getting more and more revealing of who this Jesus guy is. Do you believe in him as revealed in the scripture? That must happen. We do not get to make up what we think about Jesus. Have you believed? Have you made that step of saying, yeah, I believe in his, who he is as revealed in scripture? Are you following like the disciples who get to see more of him revealed in your life through these interactions at a goofy wedding gone astray, a craziness at a national holiday? Because we've all been through some of that stuff. Do you still trust and follow and believe in him as he has revealed himself in your life walk? And do those who watch you know that they can see that belief in action? Is it okay to work behind the scenes? Are you okay with that? As we work through the obedience and action of the sermon this morning, is it okay to work behind the scenes like Jesus did? This is kind of tough. Some people, this is really, really easy, and for others, it's really tough. Can you see a need and meet that need without expecting anything in return? So all for the bride and groom. All for somebody else. Are you, if we were incredibly zealous for worship like Jesus was when you walked in at 10 o'clock, would you be all right with that? Would you have been all right if Jesus walked in this morning and said, because he knows, and started cracking a bullwhip, you'd have been like, I'm out of here. Or you'd have been like, whoa, I remember. Yeah, his word says he's zealous for worship of him. Now, in our community, can you serve others without strings attached? Can you do something for somebody else without any strings attached? 
until the government says that your donation to the local church is no longer tax deductible. That's coming. Or can you serve and actually love somebody in the community and say, hey, I care about you as an individual and not for me. That's hard. Because usually we want to befriend people and be around those that we can get something out of. It's really hard to go about life, and with coworkers especially, to serve them without any strings attached. Are you living like Jesus knows? If Jesus is who he says he is, is revealed in Scripture, he knows. Either that is the fear of God, that, oh, he knows, or the fear of God, I trust so. The fear of God always takes two sides. Fear of, whoa, he knows. Or, thank you, you know, you know my heart. And as your life footsteps in your community reflect that in such a way that your neighbors, friends, coworkers say, I see it, some different. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for you. Thank you for your word that you've given us that we can trust. Thank you for taking the steps to reveal yourself in each of our lives. Thanks again for listening. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala or the sermon you just heard, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org.